From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Kelly Kenoyer, in for Ben Shockman. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, we'll hear about how modern zoning can contribute to the legacy of segregation and what gentrification can mean for a neighborhood that has historically seen little investment. Then we'll explore the proposed land development codes for Wilmington and how they're designed to help with affordable housing to build a better city. But other cities and states have gone farther. But first, WHQR intern Maddie Holloway and I spent weeks digging into Wilmington's segregated history. We're going to tell you the North Side story. We're going to the library, and then we're going to church. Maddie and I took several hours to do research at the Carolina Room of the New Hanover County Regional Library. It's where all the local history books, newspaper clippings, and other local artifacts are kept. Oh, and this one was talking about doing repairs on black housing. Mm. We were digging for clues. How was segregation implemented in Wilmington in the past, and how has that legacy shaped Wilmington today? Well, to start off, parts of the city were surprisingly integrated right after slavery ended. So take it back into the 1800s. And what's interesting is that this Brooklyn community was mixed. That's Cynthia Brown, the historian for St. Stephen AME Church in Brooklyn Arts District, formerly known as Brooklyn Heights. It was a diverse community. And from what I understand, there was white population, African-American population, Jewish population. The African Methodist Episcopal Church is a proud brick structure, though its stage and pews have stayed in darkness thanks to COVID. Brown has been coming here for decades. She grew up in Brooklyn Heights. Historically, demographic maps show that the black population of Wilmington lived in neighborhoods all around central downtown, on the south side by Greenfield Lake, out east past Fifth, and past Red Cross to the north. Other historians agree with Brown. Integration was a fact of life in Wilmington in the 1800s. Here's Jan Davidson, a historian at Cape Fear Museum. So if you lived in Wilmington in 1800 or 1850, or even um, up through the 1890s, you lived in a place where you probably lived close to people, maybe not in the same block, but close to people who didn't look like you. But that changed after the 1898 coup and massacre. Black neighbors were pushed out and segregation rose to prominence under a white supremacist regime. White-only neighborhoods throughout the country were enforced through a combination of violence, racial covenants, and lending practices like redlining. Here's Davidson again. I can guarantee you that it happened here. It's a nationwide phenomenon. It's a combination of the insurance industry, the banking industry, and, and, and the, the government that says it's too risky to lend money to poor people in a, in a city. So that's redlining basically creates undesirable neighborhoods. And one of the things that makes a neighborhood undesirable in the, in the eyes of these institutions is that it is integrated. The term redlining comes from literal red lines drawn on maps, which told banks where it was acceptable to give out loans and where it was not. Though little evidence of redlining exists in Wilmington specifically, signs of segregation are rampant. Other methods included restrictive covenants, a few words in a deed that forbade black ownership of a plot of land. Entire suburbs were advertised as racially segregated, Carolina Place, for instance. So those were legal and used everywhere between 
1917 and 1948. In 1948, the Supreme Court says they're unenforceable, but they are not deemed illegal until the 1960s. Davidson pulled out maps showing where the black population lived in 1940, and it's incredible how carefully segregated black neighborhoods were from white neighborhoods. But I think what you can see in the light of 1898, or in the segregated era, that you can definitely see that African Americans have historically been really restricted to the downtown, to two sort of central um, neighborhoods. So 17th Street sort of becomes the divide, and you can still see it today when you drive up 17th Street. On the Carolina Place side, it's much more white than on on the nearer the river side, and that's a legacy of this era. As we dug into the archives at the library, we found some pretty stunning maps. Side by side, maps of black neighborhoods and maps of derelict housing were exact matches, particularly in the 1940s. Whereas 14% of white occupied homes were in poor condition, that number jumped to more than 60% of black occupied homes. Brown said Brooklyn Heights was a perfect example of this in the 1940s. There were part, it, it was almost like mixed housing. There were parts of Brooklyn that had older shanty style houses. There were parts of Brooklyn that had houses that were almost like the caliber of what you would see down in the historic district. The black enclaves of Wilmington didn't receive much investment from the government other than a few public housing projects, which went up in the early 40s. As late as the 1960s, roads in Brooklyn and south of downtown were unpaved, and many homes were without even a bathroom. Davidson showed us photos from that era, black residents in their Sunday best, standing on dirt roads in an underinvested slice of town. And um, the photos are a wonderful, intimate look, but they if you look at them simply through the lens of what you see in the background, you can often see some pretty old school technology and some not great living conditions, which I think supports the idea that you can see in these maps that there are African-American neighborhoods. There's not a lot of opportunity for you in those neighborhoods, regardless of how well off you are, to move somewhere else. Um, you know, the suburban dream, it's not really very accessible. There are a couple of places in the city that are um, racially restricted to African-Americans. Um, but the, the overwhelming like housing development between 1900 and the 1960s, you see white-only suburbs. Davidson said that in the 30s and 40s, Wilmington actually went through a housing crisis, one even more severe than the shortage we're seeing today. Much like our recession in 2008 stopped new housing from being built, the Great Depression stopped investment in new housing, too. Then World War II began, and dock workers of all races streamed to the shipyard in droves. And so the city's population burgeons at the same time where the country is in a total war, so almost all the resources are going to the war effort. I mean, I think that the pressure that was on um, Wilmington's housing stock in World War II and the way that rents went up you know, it's hard not to see parallels to today. There is this pressure on housing that um, definitely happens when there are boom times. And 
it's my sense that we are in one of those boom times. You know, people, people want to live here and that's great, but it also creates issues for the folks who are already here. And then, you know, how do we accommodate an ever-growing population? Davidson said the housing pressure from the Great Depression shaped the growth of the city and county. Um, the number of people who start to live outside the city proper and in the unincorporated county goes up a lot between 1940 and 1970, but also the kind of suburban development that we see, um, Pine Valley, uh, Lincoln Forest, those kinds of places really start to take off. By then, though, restrictive covenants weren't legal. Instead, new developments managed to be exclusive through the use of exclusionary zoning. Here's City of Wilmington Planning Director Glenn Harbeck. So zoning was an invention that was applied through local government to provide the same protection to parts of the city that did not have the protection of restrictive covenants. In Wilmington, I believe zoning first came into play uh, in about 1960. It didn't come to the county until 1970, I believe. Zoning codes protected neighborhoods from commercial development, but they also could be used to determine the social class of residents by limiting who was able to afford a home. Zoning probably had uh, racial impacts, uh, racial segregation impacts, because zoning was created originally primarily to protect single-family residential development in the early suburbs. And you combine that with the redlining policies of the federal government, and you wind up with a formula that causes segregation. So was, was zoning specifically designed to segregate the community? I would say in most instances not. However, that was clearly the outcome, and the culture of the day didn't fight it. Here's Davidson again. So zoning laws may never mention the word black, white, or race, or racism, but they're absolutely embedded into this system. So black residents were unable to move to white suburbs in the 20s to 40s because of racist restrictive covenants. And they might have struggled to finance a home in those neighborhoods afterwards because of redlining or because of the historic economic disparities between blacks and whites. So where did black residents live? Well, they lived in Brooklyn Heights and saw everything from urban renewal to riots to gentrification shape their homes. First, it was neglect. Most of the roads in Brooklyn were still dust and dirt through the 1960s, and those homes were in poor condition, 60% or more of them, according to the 1940 survey. Then there was so-called urban renewal, a program where the federal government would invest money in bulldozing derelict neighborhoods. Here's Cynthia Brown from the St. Stephen AME Church again. You had mixed housing stock, that's a good way to put it, one story, two and three story, and then shanty types. But they weren't tearing houses down in the 40s. As a matter of fact, they started tearing houses down in the 60s, and that came with the urban renewal. One area that was bulldozed then was called Tank Town. You all hadn't heard about Tank Town? Brown took us on a tour of Brooklyn in her car and pointed out a series of empty fields between 3rd Street and the river, right where the city has now proposed the Gateway Project. All of this was like this big field of shanty-type houses, and it was called Tank Town. 
And that's where you had the really bad housing in Brooklyn. To my knowledge, there were a lot of black people there. It was before and after World War II. And Turns out there are a lot of vacant lots in Brooklyn that used to be something else. One on 4th and Brunswick used to be a movie theater. There were grocery stores, general stores, doctor's offices, the whole nine yards. Some of the longtime residents, like Joe Baldwin, told us all about it. There's a whole lot of businesses around here, but they had a drugstore on the corner, Fourth and Nixon. Beside it, they had a grocery store, they had a fish market right on that corner right straight up there on Fourth and Swan. Well, most of them went out of business, went out of business because of lack of funds, you know. Most of the businesses I just named were black-owned, see? And most black people, when I was coming up back in the day, didn't have enough money to keep their businesses going for so long, you know? They last five, six years and fold, you know? Some of the businesses burned during riots after Martin Luther King was assassinated, and others went into decline after the railroad stopped coming to town in 1968. They tore the buildings down. They tore all, all the buildings that I just named, they just tore them down. Ain't they building left, not neighbor. When, when they tore the AP down, I was, I'm 69 today. So when they tore the AP down, I was 10. So it's been a while, you know. It's been a long time, but. Brown told us a lot of black professionals left Brooklyn for newer suburbs. Some were built specifically to service black families. Now, though, the neighborhood is changing again. This place, which used to be 99.6% black, is now becoming integrated as white people and other races move in. Like me. When I moved to Wilmington, I found a place in Brooklyn, and I never knew that any of these empty lots had this history. To be honest, I wondered what my neighbors would say when I asked how they felt about white folks moving in. Am I a gentrifier? Or can I blame earlier arrivals, my white neighbors with more money, for that? But opinions on this new integrated character were a lot more mixed than I was expecting. Well, the changes are good, but we still we still running short. You know what I mean? We had uh, a, a, a grocery store. That's the main thing. Here's another neighbor, Ronald. Are you unhappy with how it's changed? Oh, no, I'm very happy. Yeah, because that's when, you know, people can come together and pull together. Because everybody got to have to have somewhere to live and stay. When the white folks started coming in and everything, the other folks that was uh, here 20, 30 years ago, oh, no, uh, but they had to adapt to it. So it's beautiful now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But others don't feel the same way. Harriet Elizabeth Bryant Croming has lived in Brooklyn since the 80s and said it was still all black then. But today? Oh, we have a mixed, very mixed neighborhood now. Um, blacks whites, Mexicans, just a variety of people. Uh, it's a little different. Um, seems like some people are coming over to try to take over and it's not, that's not the kind of neighborhood that we're used to. We're just in there together. Cynthia Brown has also watched those changes in the past decades and said it seems like an intentional choice by the city. Wilmington developed a reinvestment plan starting in the early 2000s, which led to 4th Street being redone quite nicely among a few other changes. I think the level of investment has changed tremendously because the city sees this as hot real estate. I believe, I can't say this as fact, but I believe the city sees the Brooklyn neighborhood as an enticement. It's hot real estate because it's an area 
that will attract people, and I don't say this offensively, but like urban pioneers, people who are willing to come into an area that's under redevelopment or gentrification to be a part of it sprouting back up, to get in on the front end of where it's going so that down the road they'll have a million dollar property. And while some of the investments are nice, people like Harriet are feeling some unwanted pressures now. Uh, we get something in the mail all the time about buying our house and there's our house sitting up on the picture and it's like, we're not interested in selling, but it's just like they're stalking the neighborhood trying to find what they could um, get something for little or nothing and fix it up very nice and rent it for thousands of dollars. So that's what we see going on now. Uh, quite a bit of it. But maybe with more population moving into the north side, some of the businesses will come back too. Already there are more bars and restaurants popping up on 4th. But Joe Baldwin says more could be done. It's been a mess around this place, huh? You need to make some real changes and put the things people need in this neighborhood back in the neighborhood. Grocery stores, laundromats. But you ain't got no car. You know what you got to do? Pay somebody $20 to go get a loaf of bread. Some of the changes are painful for long-term residents. But if they come with new investments from the city or with a long-awaited grocery store in a few more years, they might be willing to overlook it. Coming up next on WHQR's The Newsroom, I'll be talking with Dr. Andrew Whitmore and Dr. Danielle Spurlock about the through line from segregation in the past to gentrification in the modern day. And later on, a close look at what is in the proposed land development codes and how they may help with Wilmington's affordable housing problem. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm your guest host, Kelly Knoyer. Coming up a little bit later on the newsroom, we'll take a look at how the proposed land development codes in Wilmington will shape the city in the decades to come, and how they try to balance neighborhood character with affordable housing. But first, a conversation with my favorite kind of people, planning nerds. I'll talk with two professors about how zoning and segregation were historically linked, and how city governments and new residents alike can try to treat gentrifying neighborhoods with respect. I'd like to welcome Dr. Danielle Spurlock and Dr. Andrew Whitmore, both teaching at the UNC Chapel Hill Department of City and Regional Planning. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. To get started, I'd like to ask a bit about some of the common methods that were used in North Carolina to enforce segregation, particularly in the time between the 1898 coup and the civil rights era in the 1960s. Andrew, do you want to start? Sure. I mean, the, the classic most widespread method was intimidation. So it was very clear to all black households, I feel comfortable saying that, that there were certain territories where if they went there, you know, especially if they set up residence there, established residence there, they would not be welcome. And so intimidation could take any sort of form. I mean, most um, most drastically, probably firebombings, things like this. So this was throughout the country. So it took a, a great amount of 
courage and, and nerve to even try to seek a loan for a house in territories that were understood to be white. People did, of course, but the the first kind of more formal means of segregation that you would, would run into uh, would probably be private covenants, but of course, enforcement was, was by the public sector, by an injunction of, of the court, right? So it would very typically be in deeds going all the way up to 1948 when the Supreme Court rules that they are unenforceable. Now that doesn't mean that covenants weren't still marketable. You could still have them on the books and you could still say things like this is a white community. So then beyond intimidation and and then private covenants, you have racial zoning ordinances. The first to pass one of those is is Baltimore. And this is, I mean, this is apartheid, right? The Supreme Court threw this out, not because it violated the 14th Amendment, but because it violated a, a white property owner's right of alienation, right? To sell to a black man to live in a to occupy a house in, in a white district. So when, when that went out the door, it's pretty widely recognized that separating housing types would be effective for uh, for this purpose, right? It's a much more kind of blunt instrument than just saying black people live here, white people live here. Interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the exclusionary zoning. Can you define that term and explain what that means? Because it's not explicitly mm-hmm. racialized, but- Well, right, yeah. And all zoning is exclusive, right? It's all based on saying this is allowed here, this what this is what's not allowed here, right? So you could say all zoning is exclusive that in in a way, and it's that's the way it's designed to be, right? But when we talk about exclusionary zoning, we particularly mean regulations when you have regulations that push the cost of new housing, say by requiring larger lot sizes, uh, requiring you know, wider, wider frontages. There are all kinds of things that that localities can do to basically drive up the, you know, in their minds, the quality, but that's also the cost of, of new housing. And this historically has been effective, right? You are seeing Black Americans and, and other people of color, uh, you know, slowly chip away at segregation as, as gains in income are made and as the FHA has become a useful tool in, in challenging say, um, uh, loan discrimination, lending discrimination. But, you know, studies uh, that have looked at, say, the extent of local zoning regulations, uh, there's a pretty clear association between stricter zoning and, and higher levels of segregation at the metropolitan level. But this is true for income and race, right? You know, those two variables interact because of U.S. history. So what is the character of those uh, of those neighborhoods that are in exclusionary zoning? But generally, we're talking about zoning for nothing but a single family detached house, right? A single family detached house is, I was just looking at the American Housing Survey from 2017 today, is consistently across metropolitan areas, the most expensive kind in terms of monthly housing costs, the most expensive kind of, of housing you can get, right, detached. So, you know, attached is is a little bit less expensive. And then you're looking at multi-unit buildings, which are generally less expensive until you get up to really, really big multi-unit buildings, say in a metropolitan area like New York, where you're talking about like luxury condos, right? You know, we're setting apart the majority of our metropolitan areas, really, for the most expensive kind of housing products. This is clearly inequitable. In addition to that, lot size, is, is very much uh, tied to housing costs in, in metropolitan areas. You know, bans on manufactured housing or, or mobile homes are very prevalent. 
a lot of localities in the United States have uh, minimum floor area requirements. They require new housing to not just be, say, detached and all a large lot, but they require the house to be 2,000 square feet, right? I will say uh, all of those regulations that you've listed pretty much we have seen in the historical record and some of them remain in our land use development codes today here in Wilmington. Right. Yeah. And th- this isn't to say everywhere should have as, as much density as what, you know, there are, t- there are local roads that only have so much capacity. Mm-hmm. There are areas that deal with flooding, right? Historically, what we've seen is the areas for higher density, they sometimes end up in these places that aren't as really good for that density or strung out along arterials. You know, these are environmentally just lower quality areas. So we give most of the land to people who are able to afford housing of a certain cost. And that is often the best situated land, the best serviced in every way. I think also wildly inefficient when we think about uh, the provision of infrastructure. As you spread these houses out farther from a land use standpoint, that's more impervious surface for roads. It's you're pushing your water resource, sewer infrastructure farther. So as we think about sustainable uh, land use development, uh, when we think about you know per capita expenses, this single family dwelling unit on these large lots is also wildly inefficient, but it is wrapped up in how we think about the American dream. I'm supposed to have a lawn, I'm supposed to have the substantial amount of space that I might be turning over to more impervious uses and having stormwater issues. But all of that wraps into how we think about the market. As Andrew's talking about, there's all of these market failures around affordable housing. Uh, That's a lot of what urban planning is about. How do we think about the sets of incentives and regulations and policies and programs that can help us address many of these market deficiencies? But what we see is a lot of these regulations uh, exacerbating that market failure, in part, again, because of that mobilization of power, that mobilization about uh, the narrative around housing and how it's wealth creation, uh, that narrative about how it is about our kind of individual way that we see ourselves. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. I'm Kelly Knoyer, and I'm talking to UNC Chapel Hill professors Danielle Spurlock and Andrew Whitmore about how zoning and segregation historically intertwined in North Carolina and how that legacy continues in today's zoning maps. Danielle, this might be more of a question for you. Historian Jan Davidson mentioned that neighborhoods with a combination of single-family homes, duplexes, and townhomes may help create more diverse and integrated places. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? It's getting back to the point that Andrew made earlier. The most expensive housing is single-family housing on these large lots. Once we start mixing those different types of housing, whether it's row homes, townhomes, apartments, even these smaller multifamily units, you're giving this opportunity for different income groups to be together to afford housing in the same area and have access to amenities or you know, rights. Because so many of those daily activities are organized by where you live. So once we shift who has access um, based on housing, we can shift who has access to different rights and amenities. For neighborhoods like Brooklyn that are close to downtown, the zoning Mm -hmm. allows for more density. Uh, You can have duplexes, triplexes, townhomes, all kinds of things. 
But in the further out suburbs, which are historically white, the only additional density beyond a single family home that will be allowed by right is accessory dwelling units or ADUs. I'm curious what you think about that impact. You know, in in countries like Canada, where they've had policies allowing ADUs for for a very long time, we see that they make up a huge amount of the rental the rental stock, right? So they've become a very very important part of sustaining communities and and providing places to to live. They also kind of don't disrupt the prestige of living in this area, which is a huge element of it, right? To be able to to say you live in some of these communities and they're kind of understood to be exclusive. Um, but they they aren't as, say, disruptive as maybe a, a small apartment building would be because, as you said, they're in the setbacks, right? They often sit in the rear of the lot. You can't tell it's there from the street necessarily. So, I mean, allowing ADUs and, I mean, really allowing them, right? Not subjecting them to additional requirements, say that the occupant has to be of a relation to the person in the primary house. You know, that it's it's really is it's a big step. I think it's a necessary step forward to think about uh, creating more density within areas where we have already developed. Um, I would argue, I think it's gonna be wholly insufficient to solve a larger problem around housing integration, in part because of the decisions that will be made at a household level about who's living in my backyard. Uh, if we are still dealing with our individual discomfort, uh, particularly in the South with black and brown populations, there will be different sets of barriers and barriers that are not necessarily uh, subject to fair housing uh, law um, that are going to be in play about who lives in my backyard and all of those stereotypes, all that discrimination. I think it's also the likelihood that we have to think about uh, these new ADUs are going to be new. New is not the way that we create affordable housing in the U.S. for the most part. When we often think about affordable housing, it's because we've let it cycle through. Uh, so it's why we see older housing. We don't have a ton of time left, but I really would love to ask you a little bit about gentrification. What is the balance between integration and gentrification in a neighborhood like Brooklyn that is changing demographics right now in ways that some of the neighbors consider a plus because it's leading to more investment in the community and other neighbors are concerned about because they're seeing their own relatives, their own neighbors die off and be replaced by rich, young, white people? I usually think there's three points of discussion when we're having this larger conversation of gentrification and displacement. The first question that individuals need to address is why are these neighborhoods now desirable? Uh, some of its location, but some of its also historic redlining that has undervalued this housing, that is undervalued uh, local investment. Those are very clear decisions about where capital goes, who has access to maintain, which then creates a system where if I do have access to capital, I now can see a real value added in this is affordable or this is a, an affordable entry point in. And I might also have the access that was denied earlier residents, the ability to renovate uh, the homes to my specifications. So there's that first conversation for those who are making that decision about well, what systematic levers do I have access to that those who uh, have been living in a neighborhood haven't been able to access? Who is uh, taking on that burden, that disadvantage? I think the second point is how you act as a neighbor once you're there. Uh, we see this with um, calling for code enforcement. 
the use of code violations over policing of those long-term residents. That is another way that we see people move into a neighborhood and shift not just the culture, but also the comfort level of those who have lived there for a very long time. It'd be one thing if I thought long-term that the half million dollar house uh, and the residents of that house were willing to live long-term next to the $50,000 house. Uh, but that's not the dynamic we see in place. So that's part of why we can't just say, well, gentrification is this neutral phenomenon because it's not. Uh, it's based on systematic discrimination and it will build into who has access to full certain levels of power, as well as suddenly saying, oh, that pothole is getting filled. Oh, there's now urban greening that's going on. It's not causal, but there's an association that long-term residents are very clear on. That final point is really about the displacement then. If you're not willing to continue to shift policy so that people can remain there, uh, you're not gonna end up with a interracial type of community. You're systematically pushing people out, uh, and then they're going to be displaced to areas where there aren't necessarily resources. There isn't uh, necessarily that same type of investment strategy. So if we aren't going to deal with gentrification and its systematic foundation, as well as the displacement, uh, we really are trying to have this neutral idea of what revitalization looks like that is a historical in my mind. I'm curious what you think a city can do to try and mitigate the harmful effects of gentrification in a neighborhood like Brooklyn. I think what we need to do is come up with policies like Danielle was saying, in particularly uh, public housing, social housing, in neighborhoods facing transition to stabilize them somewhat, to keep affordable housing in these neighborhoods, because I don't think markets are going to do it and to encourage some further change in areas that have been historically disproportionately protected, right? And, and kind of level the, the kind of regulatory and policy landscape, kind of that the way in which we treat the, the middle-class single-family white neighborhood versus the way we treat working-class areas, especially black areas as, as places that can be intensified, moved, transitioned. Do you have anything to add, Daniel? We're, we're right on the same page. There is not a way to regulate out of this because it gets to a fundamental market failure that uh, the market can't be depended on to solve. That doesn't mean there's not a governmental role. There is a governmental intervention, but some of those cost-benefit analyses, for example, mean that that's never going to make the financial sense. If we're going to value access to affordable housing, if we're going to value having uh, more integrated neighborhoods, there has got to be a different approach to how we're doing the financing, how we think about what those investments look like, and the demands that we make on the, on the bottom line for it to be considered feasible. Is there anything else either of you would like to add on this conversation? Yes, I, I think too often we think of our policies, our regulations, as like we had the moment when we moved from de jure by law segregation, but we didn't actually take enough time dismantling it, uh, dismantling the systems, the institutions. So we shouldn't be surprised that the tools of these institutions still reproduce inequitable outcomes. My, my hope would be that folks would be less likely to say, to, to be surprised, but to assume that what comes out of this inequitable institution will be an inequitable outcome 
and we should be uh, proactively working to dismantle it rather than seeing it do its its work and be like, oh, I didn't expect that. Like we should anticipate it because we haven't put in the, the work that's necessary as a society. Thank you both so much for your time. This has been such an interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you. Coming up next on the newsroom, we'll take a look at the proposed land development codes in Wilmington and how they're engineered to help with affordability. And we'll hear about how other cities and states have gotten rid of single-family zoning altogether and why city staff say that's not in the cards for Wilmington this time around. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer. We've heard about segregation. First, how it was racialized in the past and how it's become both racial and class-based in the present. So now let's take a look towards the future at how the city will address a major issue, affordable housing. The city is looking at new land development codes and those regulations can shape the city for the coming decades. And they'll determine whether current patterns remain or whether certain parts of the city might start inching towards integration. The Cape Fear region is growing at a tremendous pace. In the last 10 years, 36,000 people have moved to New Hanover County, a 17% increase. And we're projected to grow by another 8% in the next five years. That's according to the county's housing assessment from earlier this year. All that growth has to go somewhere, and yet Wilmington and New Hanover County alike are facing a housing shortage. And the market is especially limited at the low end, meaning low-wage earners are struggling to afford housing. Nearly two-thirds of households reported concerns about spending too much on housing. And the majority of renters are housing burdened, meaning they spend more than 30 percent of their income on housing. Here's housing advocate Katrina Knight. So, you know, the market is taking care of your high-end, you know, folks. Um, the Housing Authority is certainly doing their part at the lower end, but there's uh, a significant shortage of rental units and, of course, homeownership opportunities for folks kind of at the lower end. It's in the thousands. With the current shortage and with projected growth, it's clear that Cape Fear needs housing, and a lot of it. In the midst of discussions around an affordable housing bond, the city is also in the midst of creating new land development codes. They'll determine how the city grows and changes for the next 20 to 40 years. So how will the LDCs help facilitate more affordable housing? Wilmington Planning Director Glenn Harbeck says there are several ways. One involves allowing more residential housing in commercial areas, especially along the major streets of Wilmington. That should help some residents ditch cars, which can cost up to $10,000 a year to own. If we see opportunities for more intensive mixed-use developments along those major corridors, then I think the whole region benefits because the transit system will be supported, we'll have fewer cars on our streets, 
and we'll have a city functioning a little better than it does when everybody's dependent on the individual automobile. There are several major hubs that will be allowed to have this kind of density, around the university, around the hospital, and Mayfair, among others. I'm particularly enthralled by the area around Independence Mall, Hanover Center, where I think there's opportunity there. And we're seeing some right now for um, mixed use and affordable housing or mixed income housing associated with that commercial center. But not everybody wants to live in these giant apartment complexes. A lot of people want more space, a yard, or to live in more of a neighborhood. Those folks turn to single-family homes. Or if they want something smaller or less expensive, missing middle housing. Harbeck explains. Missing middle housing is the range of housing between a single-family home and a large apartment complex. It's all those housing types that fall between those extremes. But what we haven't done as much of, and that's where we really need to to push, is the missing middle, which is the duplexes, the triplexes, the quads, townhouses, you know, townhouses and maybe no more than a dozen in a bank so that it doesn't become an overwhelmingly large development. He said the new land development codes aim to put more of that kind of housing in the downtown area, where Wilmington drew its corporate limits in 1945. It's an area bordered by the river to the west, 17th Street to the east, and from Greenfield Lake to the south to Smith Creek to the north. Basically the downtown, and a lot of the historically black neighborhoods around it. But outside those areas, the only infill development proposed are accessory dwelling units, or ADUs. Those are small, separated cottages in a homeowner's backyard, or sometimes an apartment over the garage, or a basement conversion. Not that we have basements in Wilmington. So in the majority of the residential land in Wilmington, in all of the suburbs and low-density zones, ADUs are the primary mode of infill development. They've been allowed for a long time, but with caveats that make them uncommon. There was a provision in there that I call the poison pill, and that is you had to have a lot and a half. They've gotten rid of that requirement in the proposed code, so now any residential lot in Wilmington is allowed to build an ADU. They'll still have to meet existing setback requirements, but that's a given for garage or shed conversions. But ADUs, as Dr. Daniel Spurlock has said, are a pretty limited way to add in more housing. Uh, If we are still dealing with our individual discomfort, uh, particularly in the South with Black and Brown populations, there will be different sets of barriers and barriers that are not necessarily uh, subject to fair housing law that are going to be in play about who lives in my backyard, and all of those stereotypes, all that discrimination. Since the landlord of the ADU lives on the same lot, they might be more choosy about who they decide to invite onto the property. And that may mean discrimination. Other cities and regions have gone much farther than ADUs alone in the burbs. They've gotten rid of exclusionary single-family zoning altogether. There's one other alternative to single-family homes in the less dense zones. They're called cottage courts. It's basically a number of small houses around a shared courtyard, but the maximum density is just five cottages per acre in R15. Compare that to 3.2 units if it's just single-family homes. The density for a cottage court is lower than if each house on that block built an ADU. And under the current code, no developers have built a cottage court anywhere in the city. So we have a cottage court provision. We've tweaked it now twice. We're still trying to find out where the sweet spot is to get people to, to use that provision. We've gotten calls from out of town. I have one lady who's been calling me from Michigan saying, I understand you're building cottage court developments in Wilmington. I want to move there. Where, do, where can I find a cottage court development? And I said, well, we're waiting for them to take hold ourselves. He's hoping the changes in the proposed code make that option a little more popular. Other cities and regions have gone much farther to add more housing in the burbs. 
they've gotten rid of exclusionary single-family zoning altogether. After all, surveys show that single-family developments have an average of just 3.2 housing units per acre, a pretty dismal use of the Cape Fear's limited space. Banning single-family zoning sounds extreme, but it's not like getting rid of zoning is the same as getting rid of the homes. It just means new construction might be something other than a single-family house, or that an existing home could be subdivided into a duplex or triplex. Richard Kallenberg of the Century Foundation has written about these changes in Minneapolis, the first metropolitan area to ban single-family zoning back in 2019. So after Minneapolis adopted its policy of legalizing duplexes and triplexes, we saw the state of uh, Oregon adopt a statewide policy for the vast majority of communities in the state where duplexes and triplexes would be legalized. In North Carolina, Charlotte recently moved to legalize duplexes and triplexes. Berkeley, California has done the same thing. Colin Berg says it's too soon to tell whether these zoning changes have made a difference, especially with the impacts of the pandemic coming so soon after the changes. But he's hopeful. Minneapolis and other local communities have opened the door to a much healthier conversation where we talk about the possibility of making our society more inclusive, make housing more affordable, improve uh, environmental protection, and, and help unify the country by uh, reducing these artificial barriers that the government puts in place of people who are looking for better lives for their families. So, if exclusionary zoning has come to its end in Charlotte, in Oregon, and in Minneapolis, why not here? Why not drop more missing middle housing into the low-density neighborhoods in Wilmington? Here's Harbeck from the city again. We believe with our code, you've got to crawl before you can walk, and you've got to walk before you can run. And I don't think Wilmington is quite ready yet to bite off the notion of eliminating single-family exclusive zoning altogether. I don't think we're there yet as a community. Harbeck says the city talked to 4,000 residents while compiling the comprehensive plan and found little interest in ending exclusionary zoning. That plan was adopted in 2016, and he said the LDCs do focus on what residents were interested in, a bikeable, walkable city. I think the LDC has been shaped to go as far as it can at this moment in time. You want to think forward. You want to think toward the next 10 years at least. But again, you've got to uh, size up the wishes of the community. And I think we got a pretty good understanding of what the community wants and doesn't want. And the LDC is taking that first step with the addition of ADUs and cottage courts in those less dense neighborhoods. And Minneapolis started with just that kind of smaller reform before it eventually got rid of exclusionary zoning. I think the smaller reforms are important, but ultimately, I think we we have to move away from government prohibitions against duplexes and triplexes. And so I hope the movement in Wilmington will will go beyond just the, the issue of ADUs. Still, Harbeck says the city has made a few other moves already to help with affordable housing like a density bonus for developers that provide 10% of their units for workforce housing. And he thinks infill development downtown will go a long way. There are policies in the comprehensive plan, in the housing area in particular, that specifically call out for the advantages of a diversification of our housing stock, a diversification of price points in our housing stock, whether it be for purchase or rent. That is, diversification is, is generally a good thing. It makes for a more resilient community. Um, it makes for a better um, working community. 
uh, hopefully where people can see other people's points of view, uh, work together for the common good of the, of the community. That diversification is certainly coming to the historic downtown. But the slightly newer parts of town, those zoned R15 or R20, can remain relatively unchanged under the proposed LDC. Time will tell whether the introduction of a few ADUs will diversify the community, but Harbeck may be right. Those neighborhoods need to crawl before they can walk or run. The LDC is still in a public comment phase. It has another public hearing on July 23rd and will likely go to a vote in August. You can also provide comments by phone or email by going to the city's website, wilmingtonnc.gov. so much to our guests, historians Cynthia Brown and Jan Davidson, professors Daniel Spurlock and Andrew Whitmore, to Richard Collenberg, and to city planner Glenn Harbeck for always putting up with all of my questions. And a very special thank you to our intern, Maddie Holloway, who worked so hard with me to report and produce this episode. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig, and our editor is Ben Schockman. If you missed part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org. And it will air again this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also find it as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program, or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again for the next edition of the Newsroom. Mm-hmm.